Welcome to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm Melissa Joy, a certified financial planner and founder of Pearl Planning. And I'm Melissa Friedenberg, financial advisor with Pearl Planning. Pearl Planning is a financial planning and investment management company located in Dexter and Gross Point, Michigan. We work with clients all around the country. The purpose of our podcast is to explore specific financial topics and provide advice you can use in your everyday life. Hello, and welcome back to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. It's Melissa Joy here today, and I am so pleased to be joined by Lindsay Bryan Podvin. She is a biracial financial therapist, speaker, and Plutus-nominated author. In her therapy practice, she uses shame-free financial therapy to help people get their minds and money in balance. Additionally, Lindsay expanded her services to help therapists with their money mindset, niching, and authentic marketing. Lindsay lives with her partner and their dog in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Melissa. I'm so happy to be here. Well, you've been a friend of Pearl Planning and we've done some collaboration. I think we last got together just about a year ago, right at the beginning of the pandemic, Right, talking about just kind of how to deal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And here we are one year later and, uh, I, I would love to have a conversation with you because you're so authentic, real, and you talk to people as a person, not as kind of financial conversations as a process. So I want to, I want to talk to people about how they can get over their fear of talking about money. And I think you would be the perfect guest to discuss that with. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a real fear and it's also reinforced time and time again through our culture, our family, our community. And when I say reinforced, I mean, if you're a kid and you say to your mom, Hey mom, how much money do you make? You're often going to get, we don't talk about that, right? You're going to be told, Nope, that's not polite. That's not something that we talk about. And those messages get reinforced again and again, as we continue to get older Thankfully, I'm really excited to say there are so many more people out there talking about money in open and meaningful ways, Um, particularly for women. There are different social media accounts dedicated specifically to how to negotiate with your boss to get a raise. Um, So we have so many more resources accessible to us. And at the same time, information doesn't lead to transformation. So we have to take that information and also figure out how to implement it. So thinking about talking about money, whether it's negotiating a raise, whether it's interviewing um, CFPs to hire a financial planner, whether it's talking to your partner about money, you can read and read and read and listen, listen, listen about it, but you actually have to start doing it in order to start doing it. It's a little bit of that like chicken and the egg thing, right? If you think back to when you were first looking for a job, And most of them were like experience required. And you're like, but it's my first job. How am I supposed to have experience? The reality is you just have to get any job, start doing it. And then you can kind of build on that. So it feels really uncomfortable at first, but as we start to talk about money, we really start to build momentum in talking about money. I'm the mom of a seven-year-old and I've heard Zoom classroom um, for the last nine months. And I have to tell you, I'm walking that fine line myself because My daughter, who's a first grader, is really interested in money. She hears cultural kind of cues to say wealth is good. And she has some really interesting ideas about what she would do with money if she got it. She's very interested in helping the homeless. But when I hear her talking about money, I 
both simultaneously am proud of her and cringing and concerned about how others are receiving that very openness about money. So I'm both professionally encouraging people to be comfortable talking about money. And then personally as a family, you know, kind of trying to tackle that exactly what you're saying. Right. Right. And, and kudos to her and kudos to you and your family for making money, something that you can openly talk about. And I don't think it is as off topic as something like sex, right? Where you talk about it only in the family and we keep it really private because that is something that's important depending on your developmental appropriateness. Right. But when it comes to money, I think there's a similar thing where you can say, hey, these are things we talk about in the home. And when it comes to school on the playground, here are other things you can talk about. So I don't think it's you're not alone and going, wow, like you're cheering her on internally. And then externally, you're like, oh, my gosh, am I going to get the email from the parent that my daughter's talking about what she's going to do to save the homeless with all of her money when she becomes wealthy? Right. Or just <laughs> that I want to be rich. Like, that's my goal. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it, it can be filtered down. And so I think, you know, we especially as women are indoctrinated to avoid those conversations instead of saying, here's an appropriate place to have it, or this is a, you know, more relatable way to be um, comfortable talking about money. And so sometimes the work that you and I do is kind of deconstructing before we, you know, build, do the foundational blocks in the right way. Mm -hmm. So you have written and one of your, you're an expert on financial anxiety. How does this go hand in hand with that? Um, the, you know, kind of um, discomfort when it comes to money conversations. Yeah. Well, when I think about financial anxiety, financial is a, anxiety is a type of anxiety that anybody can experience regardless of income or net worth. And financial anxiety is simply feeling nervous, worried, or on edge when it comes to interacting with your money. And that nervousness or worriedness or feeling on edge often leads to one of two things when it comes to taking actions with our money. It usually looks like either A, perfectionism, which is wanting to do your money the exact right way, or B, procrastination, right? Feeling so overwhelmed and anxious that you're going to do money incorrectly that you put off doing it at all. So, um, I mean, these things all intersect because if you're worried about talking about money and you're experiencing financial anxiety, you're in this really uncomfortable place where you know you need to do something with your money, but it's either showing up as perfectionism, but you can't talk about money or it's showing up as procrastination and you can't talk about it. So we have to make sure to address all of those things when we engage in financial discussions. Are there certain techniques that you can utilize to feel more comfortable to get out of the inaction zone of perfectionism or procrastination and into a more healthy kind of implementation mode? Yeah, I think one of the the tips that is so therapist-like and can sound really silly and small, but is really important, is first figuring out what your starting point is. And by that, I mean What does it feel like when you engage with your money, when you log into your bank account, when you think about your cost of living um, increase, um, if you're traditionally employed, when you think about how much money you're investing in your retirement account, 
what are the physical sensations that come up and what are the thoughts that run through your head? That's the first step in going, what do I need next? If the thoughts are, I'm so stupid, this is overwhelming, then we have a good data point to say, how true is it that you're really stupid? How true is it that you're? it's so overwhelming that you can't get started? And then we can start kind of working with that thought and that feeling so we can start taking action. I often like to think about, what is the lowest hanging fruit in terms of engaging with your money? So maybe retirement feels really, really overwhelming and you can't even imagine looking at it, but it feels uncomfortable, but more manageable to just take a look at your pay stub and just kind of acknowledge what money is going towards taxes and social security and towards your insurance. Um, right. So figuring out of the different areas of my financial life, which one is the least uncomfortable and starting there instead of diving into the deep end right away. Now, that's not to say I don't want you to get into the deep end. I do, but often building on some healthy momentum by first starting and uh, in a less scary place is going to be better for you than trying to jump right into the deep end of allocating your funds in your retirement account if that feels really overwhelming. Yes. I'm, I'm just thinking about a few techniques that I try to utilize to, to increase the comfort zone as well. So one is I I'm very comfortable having people tell me that all the things they're concerned about, I need to plan for retirement. I got to figure out my kid's college. I'm not sure if I have the right amount of money at the end of each month. So we can, we can put some of those into a corral, just like you're saying to get to the lowest hanging fruit or the most immediate or the most approachable places. And then I always like to record wins. So we we like to make a note of the things that people are doing really well. Even picking up the phone to talk to someone like a financial therapist like yourself or a financial planner, that's a win. That's a that shows action. Um, and then finally, you know, it's kind of like when you go to the cereal aisle and there's a thousand choices and that can feel overwhelming and make it you feel less capable of making an effective decision. I like to still have decisions being made, but but give people the option of choosing from a shorter list because that always feels much more, um, it, it's just easier to deal and make decisions and, and have a pathway through. Yeah. And psychology totally agrees, right? What you're talking about with the cereal boxes is decision fatigue. We make <laughs> upwards of 15 to 20,000 decisions each day, you know, things from as small as should I wear the wool socks or the cotton socks all the way up to how should my retirement account be allocated. So the more we can streamline and create guidelines, the easier it is for our brain to make decisions. To your point, it's hard to pick a cereal when there's a thousand to choose from. It's much easier to pick a cereal when there are three choices, right? So narrowing down the amount of choices you have to dial down that anxiety and increase the ability that you can choose a choice that works for you. I've seen a lot more, just like you described, situations and circumstances where there are communities where people are comfortable talking about money. Mm -hmm. You could follow your Instagram account, Lindsay, and you would be, you have conversations, you have videos, you have memes, all that, that have little snippets of money ideas. And you talk to people, you're not talking to other professionals. So it, it feels very approachable and real. I've seen groups of people that get together and, you know, kind of have um, money conversations over a lunch, um, a group mm -hmm. of executive women at a university, I know do that. And I've also heard someone who said you should have a financial BFF, just someone you're, you're willing to be a little more real with. What are some other ways that you see that you can, you can safely start to approach those money conversations? 
Yeah, I think all of those are great starting points. And it's also acknowledging how you work best and the types of relationships and conversations you like to have. So joining a big Facebook community might not be a good choice for you if you feel like you're going to be like a fish at sea and you're just totally lost and swimming amongst thousands of different people. It might be better for you to join a really small like book club, right? Where you're reading a money book each month and you're talking about it within a small cohort of folks. So I, I think it really just depends on how you best work. I encourage people to start what I call a money mastermind which is really finding a group of, you know, a small number of people, no more than maybe 10 or 12 people who are open to having structured conversations about money and meeting once or twice a month. It could be once a month you talk about a money book. And then the other time during the month, you're, you're kind of throwing out a question or a dilemma to the group and crowdsourcing information you know, we, we know that we learn and we heal in communities. So I think having money minded communities can be really, really powerful. And then in terms of within your family, opening up the dialogue with your partner, if you're in a relationship, opening up the dialogue with your children, if you have children, opening up the dialogue with your parents or caregivers, if you have parents or caregivers, anytime we can open up those conversations, it's, it's a good thing as uncomfortable as it feels. It does often feel uncomfortable and making a plan to have ways to address things or, or having goals. I'll do this over time, whether it's a breakfast date with your partner to go over finances or the things, you know, you may have different, um, you, you probably have different money experiences that you bring to the relationship or having some family meetings or discussions with between generations. All of those things are, are great. And Lindsay, I also think you do a great job of acknowledging and making space for the conversations we haven't had over the years that are your culture and your background have a lot to do with how you approach money. And there needs to be space so that, um, you know, people feel comfortable regardless of their background. So could you describe more about how you do that work or, or what we should be discussing there? Yeah, of course. So I approach my work from what I call an intersectional lens. And that word's probably been thrown a lot around a lot more in 2020 and 2021 than in previous years. But just to give a brief overview of what the idea of intersectional means, it means that we are a culmination of identities. We aren't just an identity. So when I think about approaching money from an intersectional lens, I'm thinking about how does the person who's sitting across from me show up in the world in terms of not only the big things like race and gender um, and immigration status, but also in terms of um, ability? What do they have any disabilities? Are they neurodivergent anyway? Um, how do they present in terms of their gender? How do all of those things impact the way in which they might relate to money? Um So I like to think about all of those things when I'm working with a human and less about how much dollars are coming in and how much dollars are going out. Of course, those are imperative and super, super important. And if we don't acknowledge all the different things that a person might be bringing into the space, we are missing out on a lot. And thankfully, over the past year and a half, there have been so many more conversations about all of our intersectional identities and how they might impact our money. You know, I don't have time to go into all of it, but I'll give a few examples because I'm an experiential learner. So I do best with examples. Thank um, you. Yeah. So, so in thinking about if I'm working with a Jewish client, let's say there's a history there of 
um, feeling more secure potentially with holding on to money and having a lot of cash readily available because there has been a history of having to pack your bags and leave really quickly, right? So when we work with a Jewish client, this is obviously not all Jewish folks, but there is more likely going to be that cultural and religious trauma that is there that has been passed down to them that tells them, hold on to your money tightly and keep it safe by, and safe means keeping it nearby, right? So that's one example example of how an intersectional lens of money may show up. Another example of um, an intersectional lens of the way that money may show up is if I'm working with a person who is BIPOC, and that acronym is Black, Indigenous, or Person of Color. So if I'm working with a BIPOC person, I might be thinking about how has the system of money been a little bit inaccessible to them or a lot inaccessible to them? And how might that impact their ability to trust things like banks, credit unions, um, a credit score, stuff like that? There might be a level of distrust there because of a past history of not having been included in a lot of financial industries in terms of things like redlining or not being able to get a bank account or not having access to a credit card. So acknowledging that when I'm sitting with a BIPOC person, we may have to do more work around really creating safety in that space to engage with those systems that historically might have isolated them. And that's those challenges for BIPOC people are amplified because there has been, even today, there's just, there's increased lack of access. So much of the money work that we do is relational where you, uh, if I'm a financial planner, I talk to people that I know. And so it's very community driven. And we also would um, love to see more representation within professions of um, broader communities. So, you know, as a financial planner, I always want to support BIPOC people who are looking to um, come into this profession. And I think there's just so much work to be done to increase access to good financial advice across Mm -hmm. communities. Yeah, such a good point. I love your emphasis on that intersectional lens. I, you know, as I'm hearing from you, I'm thinking I'm the child of a divorce. And so I saw two kind of different households and two different financial systems. Um, And that is different than my spouse who um, has always been, you know, kind of one family unit in his family. So we each bring different parts of conversation, different experiences. They tell us how we think about short versus long-term. They tell us how, you know, the trauma that we bring to um, a conversation or relationship. So it's really, it's really both interesting. And I think, I hope what people can hear between you and me is, is our comfort level in acknowledging how difficult conversations can be, but also how worth it and how much value they bring when people start to address those fears. Right. And it's, it's one of those things where prior to a year and a half ago, we almost all had an inkling that people were intersectional people, but we didn't say it out loud, which is so interesting because again, being in the field like you are in money, we talk about money is like one of the final taboos, right? So if we think about financial professionals, they're actually really great at addressing difficult, awkward topics because of their lens of expertise. And if we can empower other certified financial planners in the field to acknowledge things like race, marital status, gender, things like that. It it helps because we already have a field that has been, has dedicated itself to empowering others in the community by empowering them through their financial well-being. 
I think that it, it, in, in a way it all drills down to addressing people, not accounts. So if you can see the humanity in your finance, in your relationship with your financial planner, if they, if they're talking to you as a person, not talking to your money, then that is when I think they're the most effective relationship is that's, that's where, you know, to me, I want people to hire me because they feel comfortable talking to me about their concerns and we can celebrate the wins together, but we also can break down the challenges that, that my clients feel are barriers to achieving their financial goals. And so if, if they can't feel comfortable being truly authentic, then we should, I should help them find someone who they can. Um, And there's so many people that are just waiting for that permission to be fully honest about not only what they want, but also what they feel like is holding them back. Well said. Well, just to wrap it up, I think this all relates to something that you and I both talk about a lot, which is financial shame. And Mm -hmm. so many people experience this, but they feel very alone. It's very Mm -hmm. isolating feeling. How do you, what do you see in the future for financial shame? Do you think that we can actually get it beyond, you know, these one-on-one conversations where we, we kind of tackle it as a community and society? Yeah. I mean, I think these types of one-on-one conversations are a brilliant starting point. And again, they all kind of weave together. So you and I are having a conversation here, but we know that you have an audience of listeners who's hearing this conversation and then they might turn to their friend or partner and say, oh, I listened to 52 Pearls, right? And there's kind of this ripple effect within the community. And what we know, if we look at shame research for anybody who's a fan of Brene Brown, this will all sound familiar to you, but shame is internal, whereas guilt is external. External. So guilt is I did something bad, or when it comes to money, I did something bad with my money. And shame is internal. I am bad, or I am bad with money. And so what helps with shame is talking about it, normalizing it, and creating meaning of perceived mistakes. So talking about it within a community of people who can acknowledge it is huge and making meaning of past mistakes. Let's say you were in your early 20s and you totally ran your credit into the ground rather than and continuing to beat yourself up for it, something that can help with that shame is to acknowledge, yes, I made a mistake in my early 20s. I've learned a huge lesson. I now have so much more access to information about my FICO score, and I now check my credit score on a regular basis, and I have learned from that mistake, and I know that that wisdom has has changed me for the better or has allowed me to be a little bit more cautious moving forward when it comes to different financial ventures. So yeah, I think the more that we can talk about money in in an open way and in a myriad of different ways. So like you were saying, you can get access about money or get information about money through social media, through blog posts, through books, through podcasts, whatever you need to do to build in that information. But the other thing that dials down shame is talking about it within a community. So I think all of these things are powerful and can help. And I'm really happy to see so much of the personal finance community really start to make that shift away from shame-based financial planning and shame-based financial education. For so long, the dominant narrative was, if you buy a latte, you're a terrible person. If you have debt, you're bad with money. And now we're moving towards, look, the latte isn't going to kill you. And if you have debt, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. Let's figure out how to you know, pay back that debt so you can feel comfortable and confident, but it doesn't make you a bad person. What you described is the transformation of experiences from contributing to shame to creating a resilience narrative. 
where you can acknowledge that you, you um, have been through a lot because we all have, and no one's money journey is a straight line. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I think that, that um, transformation to resilience is something that um, everyone can benefit from. And part of it is just an acknowledgement. Like this is, you know, this is an emotion in my mind and it, it deserve it has value and worth, but it, we're going to set that aside now and move on to the practicality of I'm proud of this. And, and, um, I've, I've accomplished a lot. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, I know we'll be continuing this conversation over the time. In the meantime, um, Lindsay, is there, are there places that people can follow you, um, or and access kind of your wisdom? Yeah, of course. So my company is called Mind Money Balance, M-I-N-D. My website is of that name. My podcast is of that name. My Instagram handle is of that name. And if you want to kind of get involved in my world, I have a free quiz on the four financial archetypes. So you can take it and figure out what you are. And it's more than just being a saver or a spender. It's informed by financial psychology. You can go to mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz. And then when you take the quiz, you'll get a little information about what your archetype is. And you'll also be added to my email list where you can stay in touch with kind of latest offerings in the world of mind money balance. Thank you so much for this real and authentic conversation. I hope that it encourages more of you to address and acknowledge your fear of talking about money and um, create some new goals and, and kind of change that conversation. Have a great day, Lindsay. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. You can access our first two seasons of this podcast on our website at www.pearlplan.com or on Spotify. If you're interested in learning more about Pearl Planning, feel free to sign up for our newsletter also found on our website.